Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, listeners, we're delighted that you're here for this episode of Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. Because the virus is still with us, unfortunately, we're doing our part by staying at home, and therefore this recording is at home in each of our homes across the country. So the quality of the sound, while hopefully adequate and not in any way affecting the substance, uh, is not the level of quality that we hope we can return to when we get back to normal operations. And with that, here's our episode. Hey, Fernita, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm hanging in there, thank you. How's your family, how's your sister? Everyone's doing well. My sister, who's uh, an ER doctor, is, you know, on the front lines and she's making us proud and keeping people safe and healthy. And, you know, we just pray for her safety every day. But, you know, overall, we are doing well. Well, all circumstances considered, of course. (laughs) course. Well, us too. We're thinking of you and of her and uh, all good wishes are sent your way. So um, thank you. Uh, well, I guess uh, we're going to talk about Wisconsin, don't we? Yes. Have There's so much excitement out of Wisconsin and not the good kind. Uh, so Wisconsin had a primary yesterday and there were also um, some other elections as well, right, for this, uh, the state Supreme Court. Uh, and turnout, though, was 3 uh, percent in Wisconsin. And, and, you know, that opens the door for questions as to why was turnout 3 percent? What happened? How did we get here? Because um, that's... Uh, down considerably from 2016, but there's been a lot of excitement out of Wisconsin in recent weeks. And so, um, Ned, let's start our conversation there. What happened? Yeah, well, uh, maybe turnout should have been 0% in terms of in-person voting, 3%, maybe <laughs> 3% higher than it should have been if things had gone correctly. Yes. <laughs> I don't mean to be facetious or flip about it. I think this is a tragic situation yes. actually a real not taken that way public health crisis right oh absolutely and and what what really breaks my heart is it would be possible it would have been possible to protect public health fully by avoiding in person voting on the, on the tuesday of the election and then figure out how to solve the election problem with sufficiently robust vote by mail to remedy the public health problem. So this wasn't an either or, it could have been both. It was a false choice between life and democracy. And in some sense, I think Wisconsin sacrificed both needlessly. So it's heartbreaking. So let's not talk about this in terms of assigning blame because that can be counterproductive. Instead, let's think about it in terms of trying to prevent this from happening in states that still have primaries left. Um, that still need to occur. Uh, so what is the path that led us to having in-person voting in Wisconsin on election day during a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic? Yeah, and it's, uh, it's kind of an amazing story. Um, I mean, I think we have to 
talk about the partisanship that affects the state of Wisconsin. Again, I don't think the reason to do that is to point fingers necessarily, but you've got to analyze the situation to try to avoid similar things. And, and Wisconsin was affected by, you know, this huge partisan tug of war between the Republican legislature on the one hand and the Democratic governor on the other. And this comes at a time where um, in Wisconsin, like other states, as we've talked about in previous episodes, you've got this hyperpolarization and this animosity between the parties. In Wisconsin, it was specifically over gerrymandering, among other things. Uh, you know, North Carolina and Wisconsin have been the two main states in terms of U.S. Supreme Court litigation recently over partisan gerrymandering. And so just po politics in Wisconsin has been very ugly for maybe a decade, certainly several years. And uh, for a while, the Republicans had both the legislature and the governorship. Uh, but then the Democrats won the governorship to create this direct conflict. And they started to have tug of wars over lots of stuff. Again, kind of like North Carolina, the legislature would try to take power away from the governor and just politics just descended into this brawl. Well, that's not a good um, atmosphere for a pandemic crisis um, because it was hard for them to, to get together. Right. And um, keep in mind for our listeners, Wisconsin is one of the states that the partisan gerrymandering issue went up to the Supreme Court fairly recently prior to the decision last year, right? The Gill versus Whitford case was out of Wisconsin, which is a sign of how ugly the partisanship had gotten. It, I mean, it went all the way to the Supreme Court on this issue. Exactly. No, exactly. Um, so you had mentioned that there were other things on the ballot this week in Wisconsin besides the presidential primary. Uh, and the most significant race in the state was for a seat on the state Supreme Court. They have elected judges in Wisconsin, like in many states. And there's also been a history over the last decade of pretty intense fighting over those judicial seats. They're supposed to be nonpartisan elections, meaning that when you go and look at your ballot, you won't see Republican or Democrat next to the candidate's name like you would for president or Congress or whatever. But um, if, you, if, you're, if you live in Wisconsin and you follow politics, you know who the Republican candidate is and the Democratic candidate is. They, they are very much split liberal versus conservative and, and party supports either side. So, um, and, and control of the state Supreme Court is control of a significant amount of political power over things like redistricting that matters and, and, and just uh, control of state government. So um, this was gonna be a, an important election. And again, I'm not from Wisconsin, so I'm looking at this from a little bit from afar, but there have been these allegations that the Republicans in Wisconsin, and particularly the legislature, were not interested in, in accommodating easy voting opportunities for fear that that might make this judicial race you know, more competitive. It's an, it was an incumbent who was the conservative running for reelection, and the argument is that lower turnout might help the incumbent. Um, for whatever reason, the legislature was hostile to uh, the kinds of adjustments that we've seen in other states, given the virus. You know, in Ohio, where I am, it was a little chaotic, but they, 
They basically said, we're not going to do in-person voting because we can't for health reasons. So we'll just do this by mail. And for the most part, Ohio actually has kind of handled this very well, other than stumbling a little bit at the beginning. And other states, kind of taking the lead from Ohio, said, we're just not going to try to do in-person voting. So Wisconsin's a real outlier in this attempt to go forward, despite what every health official is saying, which is we're supposed to be sheltering at home and even trying to avoid going to the grocery store. So it was a very anomalous that you had the Republican-controlled legislature saying it's safe to go out to vote and people should go out to vote like they should go out to buy food. Well, you're only supposed to go out to buy food this week. If it's an absolute necessity, you really should be staying at home as much as possible. Um, but for whatever reason, that was the legislature's position. And I know this gets complicated, but I do think it's important to put these facts out there. Um, the governor, who's a Democrat, in my judgment, did not help matters at all. He might have been well-intentioned, but he went about it, I think, in the wrong way, in the way most likely to induce the kind of reaction that the legislature had. Why do I say that? Because his approach was opposite of what happened in Ohio. What Ohio did successfully once they got to the right place was to bifurcate the health decision from the election decision. And so what happened in Ohio the night before the primary was the, the health director, Dr. Amy Acton, who is not a partisan figure, she's just a health expert. She was the one who issued the order and said, for reasons of public health, people cannot congregate at polling places. It's too dangerous. She didn't attempt to change the date of the election. She didn't attempt to make any kind of ruling about how elections are run. Basically, her point was that a polling place is like a restaurant, is like a bowling alley. We can't, given the need for social distancing and flattening the curve and staying at home, we just cannot have this happen because kids can't go to schools, right? I mean, for all the reasons that we can't have public gatherings, elections falls within that category. So I'm not making an election specific decision, I'm making just a health decision. So I think that was a good thing. And it also, it's a basic separation of powers idea, right? She wasn't trying to aggrandize power for any political party or any politician, she was just doing health. I actually think that that's a really important point, Ned, because if you recall when we had um, uh, Nate and Charles on the show, the last episode, they made the, the point that there's a risk that some of these decisions will seem uh, partisan, even though they are really important decisions for making sure our elections continue to run properly. So the decision by the public health official in Ohio um, took on uh, even more importance for me once you consider the fact that, you know, I think most people agree that uh, the elections need to take place by mail, but it sounds different when you have a nonpartisan person making that recommendation than it does when you have a Democratic governor who is trying to convince the Republican legislature that the election needs to be canceled. Exactly. Exactly. So what Governor Evers in Wisconsin did is he didn't turn it over to his health director who, and, and again, it's tragic, but by the time this got to the state Supreme Court, you had the dissenting opinion on its own initiative pointing to the direct statutory provision in Wisconsin law that said that the director of the Department of Health in Wisconsin had the authority to stop public gatherings in the time of a contagious disease. Exactly the analogous authority that Dr. Acton used in Ohio that would have been a health basis. 
for a decision, not an election decision, but that's not the statute that the governor of Wisconsin invoked. In fact, he purported to assert the right, not again, not to make a health-specific ruling, but to change the date of the election and to make an election-specific decision. Well, it is a little bit dangerous to have a partisan governor do that. Um, and you could sort of understand why the legislature might be jealous of its own prerogatives to set the date of the election for whatever the motivation. And so Evers stupidly, in my judgment, played right into the hands of the legislature. And tragic from the point of view of the average citizen, but if he had just left it to his health official and not attempted to say anything about changing dates, then what would have happened is there would have been an electoral consequence to the health decision that somebody would have had to remediate, either the legislature itself or the Wisconsin Election Commission, which again is not the governor, or the courts. Because that's what happened in Ohio. Again, Governor DeWine in Ohio did not attempt to make any election decision. After Dr. Akin closed the polls for health reasons, she didn't say voting had to only be by mail. She right? She didn't say anything about whether or not in June there might be, the health conditions might be different. She just said on March 17th, people can't congregate in public, including at polls. And then the Secretary of State, who's the Chief Elections Officer in Ohio, said, well, I've got to comply with equal protection because there's an election that's already underway. Some people have already voted by mail. Some people voted in person early. The polls are closed. What are we going to do? So he attempted to remediate the election with the goal of full participation as much as possible given the virus. So it was, again, from his, he was not doing a partisan power grab either. And so the separation of powers meant you didn't have a governor trying to take control of everything. But in Wisconsin, the governor tried to take control of the whole decision himself, which sort of understandably made the, the legislature mad and left the people worse off. So that's why I think things went terribly wrong uh, in, in Wisconsin. You know what scares me about this as we um, think about the lessons for November, which we're going to talk about later in the show, is Wisconsin didn't learn from Ohio, right? That To me, that is the scariest story about all of this, the failure to learn from other states who are clearly going through the same thing. Um, and I honestly think this is just another casualty of the partisan bickering that Wisconsin has been going through for the last decade. Um, perhaps, and you know, I'm, I don't live in Wisconsin either, and I don't know the governor, but it is entirely possible that he saw this as an opportunity to grab back some of the power that the state legislature had taken from him. Um, and so, but, but the result is that, you know, they're, they're fighting at a time where there are serious health consequences. Right. So one of the, you know, devastating things about all of this is that in the city of Milwaukee, there were five polling places where they used to be 180. And Milwaukee is a city where it is, um, African-Americans are 26% of the population, but they're 70% of the COVID-19 cases, right? And so this partisan bickering actually has real world consequences for people who are now trying to turn out and vote um, at the five polling places that are now, op that were open in, in uh, Milwaukee at the time. And so you know, it's just really sad that, first of all, all of this was avoidable. But even more importantly, there was a solid basis for the public health, uh, the public health official in Wisconsin to shut it all down, right? Because the numbers were there. 
um, mm-hmm. even in the Supreme Court opinion, which, you know, we'll talk about, um, the, the dissenters noted that the, the amount of um, COVID-19 cases in Wisconsin is you know, around 1,500. And so um, because of that, I think that there was some basis for um, really just treating this as a public health crisis and putting partisanship to the side, but they weren't able to do that. But it also makes me wonder about developing best practices if states are not listening to each other. Right. No, I, I agree. It was avoidable. And you know, I was aghast when I saw, I think on Twitter or other news sources um, ahead of time where the governor said, well, we don't want to be Ohio. We don't want to be Ohio. And I thought, well, Ohio did pretty well. <laughs> you know, you, you'd be awfully lucky to be Ohio compared to the mess that, that you're in. Um, and Ohio so- started off pretty bad. Like right. Ohio started off with a series of missteps that they were heavily criticized for. And then they got it right. Yeah. And no, so, think, if anything, it's, you know, this is not about two Midwestern states competing against each other, right? <laughs> this is about learning from the mistakes of others in order to protect the right to vote. And, and, and that just didn't happen. Protect the right to vote and to save lives. In the, and save lives, right. Yeah. yeah. And there was a, there, there, Ohio proved that there was a path forward, certainly. Right. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the court decisions. Yes. thinking about how the courts responded to everything that happened in Ohio and whether or not the courts got it right, the district court, the Supreme Court. Let's just think about this from a legal standpoint, because, of course, and this is not to minimize the public health aspects of this. And, and in fact, it goes to a theme that we've been exploring on the show for the last few episodes, right? Voting in a time of virus. How should courts respond to um, the efforts by states to um, to conduct elections in a, in a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, right? How should, how should courts respond to these efforts to, um, you know, p- possibly alter the election rules in order to accommodate voters and protect lives? Yes, no, I, I think that's right. Before we get to the federal court, though, I'd like to say one thing about the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Yes. Because they ended up dealing with the issue about whether or not the polls should close uh, for in-person voting. And they because the governor, he, he did, the, you know, part of the problem with the governor, he, he was very wishy-washy, he was indecisive. I don't think he was malevolent, but, and, and maybe partisanship affected some of his calculations, but I think he was, um, he did not exercise good leadership skills, in my judgment. Again, it's easy to criticize, I'm not in his shoes, but, it, but he was sort of whiffled and waffled and back and forth. And then he finally tried to do what Ohio did, but it came way too late. But he did try to close the polls. Again, he, he, he invoked the wrong reason. He shouldn't have done it on election grounds. He should have done it purely on health grounds. But, but in any event... And the fact that it was him. Right. Correct. <laughs> right. correct, correct. <laughs> right. All, all of that. But, 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 the, but I, I think some... You know, the, the Wisconsin Supreme Court did not do something that the U.S. Supreme Court did. And whatever you think about the U.S. Supreme Court, I know we'll get to there. The U.S. Supreme Court cut the loaf of bread in half. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court didn't do that and could have, right? It was not an all or nothing proposition, right? Once the dissenting opinion in the Wisconsin Supreme Court points out that this could be justified as a health ruling if issued by the health director, the majority opinion kind of could have left the door open to that and said, denied the governor his right to change the date, but basically said there's this other avenue. Thanks, dissenters, for pointing this out. But they didn't take that. They slammed the door shut. Again, because they're all at each other's throat, they couldn't figure out a way to help citizens of Wisconsin. 
And I think it had this happened a, a week earlier, I think there would have been a round two that would have been the health director doing the health thing. Um, but, you know, this happened very late at night, the night on Monday night. And so, um, and there wasn't a sufficient political will for the majority of the Wisconsin Supreme Court to say, oh, that's a really good point. That gives us all a kind of way out here. They didn't take the way out because, again, as you say, partisanship overcame uh, even the court. So um, an, another element to the, to the tragedy. Um, but enough about the state courts. We, we probably should focus on the federal courts for a moment. Right. Yeah. So the federal district court changed the um, date in which absentee ballots would be accepted. Right. So originally the date is um, April 7, which is which was Election Day. Um, but the district court changed it to April 13th. And um, the district court said that the state had to accept absentee ballots, even if they were postmarked after Election Day. Um, and I think that was the, the, the big issue that the U.S. Supreme Court focused on. Uh, so, you know, I would love to get your sense of what you think of the district court's approach, because clearly the district court was concerned about, um, you know, the public health crisis, but also the fact that there was a backlog with absentee ballot requests, right? The fact that uh, many Wisconsin voters requested absentee ballots, but had not received them yet. Um, and so, you know, arguably all of that was taken into consideration uh, in issuing the opinion. But on the other hand, there's a very well-known principle in election law called the Purcell principle. Right, which cautions against changing election rules close to the election. Um, and that principle also motivated the Supreme Court's decision. And so um, it, it opens up a really interesting question about when is it okay to depart from that principle? You know, is a once in a lifetime pandemic <laughs> the time in which we depart? And, you know, and so that's one question, but then also, is this the type of departure that was justified? Right. Some people might quibble what the district court did just on the merits. Yeah. So that's a lot there. And it that's is a lot. <laughs> it, no, no, no. And it, but it, it's all it's all on the table. It all has to be dealt with because it's um, so trying to unpack it a little bit. I, I, first of all, I think the district court was well intentioned and in trying to do the right thing. And I think you put your finger on the key fact, which was there were innocent voters eligible voters, voters who had a right to participate and had a right to participate by absentee ballot. They had done what they were supposed to do. They had submitted their request for a ballot on time. So the delay was all the government's responsibility. Now, the, admittedly, we're in the midst of the pandemic. The state of Wisconsin is seeing interest in absentee ballots at four or five times you know, historical numbers. So they're overwhelmed. So you feel for them, but on the other hand, they are not sending back the ballots that the voters are entitled to. So we have a serious disenfranchisement problem if, if the deadlines are complied with. Because yes, you're correct, this, the statutory rule is an absentee voter must have the cast ballot back to the elections office by 8 p.m. on election day. Um, but that was an, an untenable when they hadn't yet received the absentee ballot in the first place. Um, that so, is like my main gripe with all of this. Exactly. <laughs> do. No, we've got to protect against this disenfranchisement. And so I think the district court was right to focus on that and right to come up with a remedy. And as the, you know, the Supreme Court pointed out, initially the plaintiffs didn't even ask for the remedy that the judge issued, but that was because the facts were changing so fast. The, the plaintiffs go into court on their papers saying, 
allow for a, an absentee ballot to be postmarked on election day, and then it can get mailed in and arrive up to a week later. Some states already have that by statute, but not Wisconsin. And, you know, so that would have been a remedy. But in the hearing, as I understand it, at the, at the um, preliminary injunction hearing, the judge goes, well, what about how's the postmark going to work if they still don't have their ballots mm-hmm. <laughs> in time to postmark them on election day? And the lawyer said, good point. And they sort of, at the hearing, agreed that the remedy should be that you could even submit the ballot after election day without, you know, and postmarked after. So the, the remedy involved in light of the backlog and the fact that voters were still going to be disenfranchised. So again, I think the district court was trying to avoid improper disenfranchisement and, 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 and thinking creatively about what's the, what's the right remedy. Now you raised this so-called Purcell principle, which is a real principle and, and is worth paying attention to, but it's a, it's a kind of factor in the analysis that, you know, under emergency litigation, there's something called the balancing of the equities. Mm-hmm. And what that means is a judge is supposed to deal with, this isn't a final decision. This is just like, what should, what should be done in the interim, all things considered, should we leave things in place or should we make adjustments given the emergency nature of what's going on? And, um, and what Purcell, I, as I understand the Purcell principle, is that judges shouldn't destabilize a, a situation that is already fairly well stable because that just makes things worse. Mm-hmm. And so especially if lawsuits are filed too late, that could have been filed a lot earlier, it's a strike against judicial intervention if it causes problems. That I think Although, is- to be clear, though, Ned, like I agree with that, but I think it's important to emphasize for our listeners that the Purcell principle is still discretionary, right? It's still this judicially created doctrine that the court applies um, based on its own decision as to whether it applies, right? It's not, um, and, and one of the reasons why I'm emphasizing that is because you have both the majority and the dissenters in the Supreme Court decision, both cited Purcell, right? right. <laughs> they are both citing it. And so to me, it just, you know, I, it, it it's important to make it clear that it's not this absolute that you know automatically resolves what's going on, right? Oh, it's something oh. that the court, yeah, that the court takes into consideration. But even application of the principle varies, as we see, because we have both opinions cited. Totally correct, and 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 along those lines, I think what seems obvious is that the lack of stability was not the judge's fault to begin with. The virus and the huge backlog of ballots was creating an unstable situation. Right. And the judge needed to respond. And, and I, I do think it is important. I mean, I am not a fan of the majority opinion in the U.S. Supreme Court. For one thing, I think the court didn't need to get involved. The Seventh Circuit had upheld the ruling. You know, the courts, the Supreme Court's involvement is also discretionary. It doesn't yes. have to get involved. So I think it should have just let well enough alone. But having said that, I think there is something to be said. Again, the, the U.S. Supreme Court majority cut the loaf of bread in half, and you can sort of understand why they did it, although it still leaves problems, because from it's this difference between postmark by election day versus later. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that is a, a valid point. It may, you know, what you do with it 
in this particular circumstances is complicated, but I do think as a general rule, it's not a good idea to have ballots cast after election day. That has to be right, right? But one key thing missing from the Supreme Court opinion is the acknowledgement that this is different, that this is not an ordinary election, right? And, right. and at one point in the opinion, the court even says that, you know, in sort of comparing what the district court has done, they say in an ordinary election, voters who request an absentee ballot at the deadline for requesting ballots will usually receive the ballots on the day before or day of the election. How are you referencing an ordinary election at a time where we're living through COVID-19, right? No, this I is not an ordinary election. And so that's my frustration with the court. They're still trying to act like things are ordinary while they're sitting here issuing opinions from the comfort of their, ho their own homes because they can't even have oral argument because of COVID-19. I mean, come on. True, no, all true. But, but, you know, one piece of good news here that I don't think we should lose sight of is that the majority of the Supreme Court accepted half the remedy. Remember, if the statute, if you took Purcell to its, you know, most extreme place where judges can't interfere at all, and you have to run elections according to the rule book as it exists, regardless of the virus or, or change circumstance, then there wouldn't have been any remedy at all. But that's not what the U.S. Supreme Court majority did. Instead, they left in place part of the remedy, which probably ended up helping most more voters than they left unhelped, just in terms of if our bottom line fear is disenfranchisement, which is my fear, and I am worried about these other voters who aren't protected by the Supreme Court. So I don't want to lose sight of that. But I do think the majority opinion actually ends up protecting more voters than it leaves unprotected. And they, they acknowledge, I'm sorry, what? I don't know. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think that the, the state had been very slow in fulfilling requests for absentee ballots, right? I just think that. So I, I, in terms of silver lining, I, I agree with your general principle that it is probably a violation of the Purcell principle that if, if the court extends uh, the deadline such that ballots postmarked after election day are accepted, Right. Like if nothing else is going on, if there's no pandemic, if there's no nothing, I think everybody could probably agree on that. Every election law scholar will probably agree that it is problematic for a court to change the rules such that ballots postmarked after election day are accepted. Right. I think it becomes a little bit more hairy where we can have disagreement about whether or not the fact whether or not the fact that we're living through a pandemic should affect that. Like some people will say yes. Some people will say no. I can even accept that. But this point about the state not sending people their absentee ballots, the numbers are pretty stark, right? They had something like 150,000 requests and they had to fill like 12,000 of them. So I guess I'm not entirely sure that, you know, the Supreme Court's opinion, I agree, it did help some of those voters, right? I agree with that. But I'm not sure. I just don't think it's good enough. <laughs> and I think well, that's no, why I get that. But I, and I, I want to address that. But I, I, I just yeah. don't want to lose sight of the fact that any voter who actually did manage to get a postmark ballot by Tuesday, even though it doesn't arrive for the next six days, and I think there will be thousands of ballots in that category, mm -hmm. they are benefiting from a judicial remedy that the US Supreme Court majority opinion approved that would not have been available if, if the statute had been followed to the letter of the statute. Um, 
and so the the majority acknowledges that because of the virus you know regardless of the purcell doctrine it was appropriate for the district court to make an adjustment to allow to avoid disenfranchisement but there's a whole line of cases that talk about the right to vote as a fundamental right that could also have justified extending extending the deadline past april 7th yes and that i you know and i just i can't get excited about crumbs anymore because I just feel like for the last 30 years, we have seen so many assaults on the right to vote, both in the political domain and in the courts, that it's just, you know, this is a situation in which, you know, it, it's hard to get past this fact that we don't live in a system that encourages people to participate. It's like, well, you got to fight to participate. And to me, this is just indicative of that broader story. Well, so and you know, it just, I, I mean, and I get what, and I'm not trying to minimize your point. I, I get your point in saying that, look, you know, there are portions of the district court order that still stand. We should be happy about that. And I'm like, yes, but it's hard for me to get happy because I'm just like, we talk about the right to vote is fundamental. We claim that we are a democracy, yet we consistently do things that undermine both of those things, right? And I just feel like we need to be honest about what is going on. If we lived in a system where we talked about what our system actually is. It's not a democracy, right? We, I, don't, I don't think we can claim the mantle of democracy anymore. I will feel better having that conversation, honestly, as opposed to sitting here pretending that we still live in a democracy when people have to sue the day before election day in order to try to facilitate voting in a once-in-a-generation pandemic. Like, this is, it's just absurd. So, three points. One is, I, okay. would, I would assign or join... Justice Ginsburg dissent, you know, were I on the court. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's where I would come down. So to be clear about that. So, um, and of course she emphasized the fact that the majority leaves unprotected, you know, at least 10,000 voters who did everything that they were supposed to do and yet had not received a ballot. So I am worried about that disenfranchisement. Second point is um, the, majority's modification of the preliminary injunction does not settle additional remedial questions that might have to arise if those if that disenfranchisement has consequences to the outcome of certain elections we don't know yet how this is all going to play out in the state supreme court race or in local races and there may be other ways to remedy this i think the the majority opinion was just saying in the preliminary injunction posture basically lifting the, the obligation to cast your ballot on election date and doing that as a ahead of time remedy, they thought that was too dangerous. Again, I would have dissented, but that's a different point from saying that there's no remedy available because of dis disenfranchisement. There may need to be a do-over election. But then third, this I did not realize um, when I first read the opinion, and I wish I had thought of it ahead of time, and I even more wish the district court had thought of it, so I think there was a way to protect against disenfranchisement and preserve the postmark date that, again, I don't fault the district court for not thinking of this in the heat of the moment, but um, you know, w part of the problem was, as we've been talking about, the fact that the, there were voters for whom a ballot had not yet arrived, as it should have. Well, there is something in federal law for overseas and military voters called the federal write-in absentee ballot. And it's designed for this situation 
in for federal elections uh, for because there's it, it is often unfortunately the case given the mails and everything that if military personnel overseas or other overseas voters don't get their absentee ballot in time and is and therefore congress has created this ability that any voter can print out their own write-in ballot you can download it off the internet and it's generic and you then fill it out for your preferred candidates and it's legally obligated to have it count if you didn't get the real ballot well i think it would have been appropriate for the district judge to in effect order the functional equivalent of that in this context in other words if you, if you were a voter who had requested a ballot on time but hadn't gotten it yet there should have been a way for you to kind of make your own at home ballot right it's just like you make you sew your own mask at home because you can't buy a mask you can print out your own ballot or write in your ballot. it's got to have all the right formalities it has to have your signature has to comply with the law but there's nothing magic about the piece of paper that the government sends that's just right. the form and so the district court could have ordered the state to accept any substitute emergency ballot that a eligible voter had done on their own with the right postmark and i don't think the majority of the u.s supreme court would have condemned that remedy i think they i don't would think so either yeah and so i think that would would have been a way to to protect every voter that justice ginsburg wanted to protect that you and i want to protect and still would have protect this principle that you don't cast ballots after election day right so i have a question and I've been dying to ask you this question. I had to, to hold myself back from asking it on Twitter. Um, <laughs> so in light of everything that happened with Wisconsin, with the litigation, you know, the uh, turnout on, on election day, just all of the controversy surrounding Wisconsin in the last couple of weeks, do you think that the election was legitimate? Yeah. Uh, well, it doesn't look that way at the moment to be honest. And I was you know, surprised that even the New York Times used a headline essentially to the effect that this election doesn't look legitimate. And that wasn't even in an editorial. That was just a straight news headline. <laughs> um, but as you know, from our earlier conversations, you know, the way in which I measure election validity is whether or not the outcome of an election, you know, is an accurate reflection of the will of the participating electorate. That's my test. And so the way in which you measure that test is you look at the, at the vote tallies and the margin of victory or purported margin of victory, and you then say, is there anything that taints it or undermines it? And I think in this case, that may well be true, but I, I don't think we can know that yet until we see the reported results. Right. Um, but if it turns out that the, let's focus again on the state Supreme Court race, if it turns out that the margin of victory in that race is 3,000 votes in favor, let's say, of the Republican candidate, and we can identify the 10,000 voters who were wrongly disenfranchised, you know, largely in Milwaukee, and so at least presumptively probably leaning in the other direction, then I would say, no, you don't have a valid election and you can't accept the result because the result is inauthentic. It doesn't really count because it doesn't measure true voter participation. Um, 
So, you know, so I still want to keep my eye on that issue because I'm not ready to say that the system worked. I think the system may well have failed. See, I, I, I agree, but for different reasons. I am more process oriented, right? I think it's illegitimate because of the fact that otherwise, voters who are otherwise eligible were not given their rights. They were not given their due. Um, and I, I, I will continue to believe that regardless of outcome, you know, because uh, at some point it has to be about the voters. And, you know, I'm just not entirely sure that uh, it's reassuring to people who care about civic participation to say to them, well, at least your candidate won, right? That's, to me, that's the equivalent of if, uh, for example, um, if women were supportive of Woodrow Wilson in 1913 and, you know, but women couldn't vote, that's, to me, that's the equivalent of saying to them, but at least your preferred candidate won, Right. But it doesn't really give, as long as we keep shrinking the electorate, I just feel like candidates have no incentive to be responsive to voters. And then they will just be responsive to the people who they think go to the polls, right? So it's really important from a process standpoint to have a very diverse electorate and to make sure that people who are eligible to vote can vote so that they feel invested in the process. And we did not see that in Wisconsin. Um, even if we compare 2016 to 2020, um, 2016, I think the Democratic primary had something like 300,000 people as compared to 18,000 um, on April 7th. And so that's just, to me, the, the claim, and I get, I get your point, right? Like at the end, you're thinking about the fact that if, you know, there's no evidence that the person who won shouldn't have won, then perhaps that is a, a clear sense that the election is legitimate. We should be reluctant to tag elections as illegitimate. I get that, but I just can't get past these process concerns and the fact that voters are a very important part of the system, especially since the Supreme Court puts so much on the fact that voters have to believe that the system works. This undermines that belief. Yeah, no, I, I think you've got a very valid process point. And, I, and, and if we take it out of the courtroom or the legal context, just in terms of public discourse, I think it is, is appropriate to kind of condemn what happened in Wisconsin is falling below any acceptable standard of democratic practice. So I, I you know, I, I get that. Um, but as a legal proposition, one way to test that is, you know, without knowing the results yet, would it be appropriate for Wisconsin voters to go back in front of the federal court and say, you know what, you should just invalidate the election. You should invalidate every race that was on the ballot in every election for because of this process failure and force the state to start over and that's hard for me um i and, and so my position would seem to demand that like i i acknowledge that but we also live in a system where we rarely do election do-overs there have been some but i mean this would be a candidate for it this would be a <laughs> this would be a candidate for, your, for it yes. yeah you know it's hard to imagine yeah. i've been thinking a lot for about one you said on our very first episode about using the Voting Rights Act of 65 as our reference point for our yes. norms. And so I can't think of an election since 1965 that seems, again, from a process perspective, as much a failure as this one. I mean, yeah. maybe- I'm okay with it, but I think district courts uh, or even maybe even state courts would be reluctant to order that type of remedy. It seems extraordinary. Uh, but, you know, I agree that this is probably the election that demands it. But I just think that courts will feel like their hands are tied. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I mean, it's hard to say. I think I, you know, if, if that if that request came to me and I was the district judge, I think I would deny it on the grounds 
that the reason for holding elections is to put people in office. And therefore, you don't invalidate the election unless the office holder is not entitled to hold office in the name of the vote, right? Because the whole point is, you know, my philosophy is governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, you, you have to nullify an election if it went wrong to the point that the person in power can't exercise power appropriately in a democracy because there was, there's a disconnect and there was a, a, a failure of the will of the electorate. And so if you can identify that, then I think you have to kick the guy or the woman out of office and say, you got to do it over again. But if you- I agree, but I I think I would go further than that though. I would say that you can't manipulate that principle by shrinking the governed, (laughs) right? Consent of the governed, yeah. But they're shrinking the pool. Well, the the, the most fundamental process problem, I think, and I think we're kind of agreeing on this, you know, if, 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 the problems in Wisconsin had been random across the electorate or the burden of having to vote in the time of the virus was equally distributed regardless of where you lived in Wisconsin. That would be one thing, but that's not what happened. This burden was felt so much more heavily in Milwaukee than in other parts of the state. And that had geographic consequences. It had other demographic consequences, racial consequences. And so that created a discriminatory election in a way that I think we have to really be troubled about, even if it technically isn't unconstitutional. Yes. Right? It, 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 it violates democratic, small d democratic norms to have that much of a disparate impact across different segments of the community. This did not hurt Wisconsin's evenly. I mean, it was terrible no, for the whole state, but it had severely discriminatory impacts. I think so. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, it, it was it, it was a really unfortunate situation, but it does raise questions. And to get to our next segment about what happens in November, right? How do we how do we learn from this? How do we move forward? What should states do? Um, because I am I am less optimistic now than I would say I was even a couple of weeks ago. I mean, perhaps it was, you know, we've been talking to people about, you know, how to prepare and, you know, and, and perhaps I was influenced by that thinking that there's a clear path forward, right? Things that election administrators can do now in order to prepare for November. Uh, but Wisconsin has me worried, Ned, I have to be honest. I don't, I don't know if people are internalizing the lessons that we've seen so far. No, I'm worried too. Um, and I think we definitely should talk about it now. I think maybe we'll have to have another episode reflecting even further on lessons to be learned and, and preparing for November. You know, I wrote a piece for the Politico website that was under development before Wisconsin happened and seems to be even more accentuated, which was as much as we need to move to more absentee voting, which I think is absolutely correct, mm-hmm. we have to prepare for the risks of absentee voting. And we saw one of those risks, which is that voters may not get their ballots in time. uh, And that's disenfranchisement and that causes litigation and it causes the mess that we had. So we we do need to study Wisconsin to prevent another version of this in the fall. The the thing that makes me most worried about is the partisanship that we started today's episode with, because I I firmly believe that if there is adequate political will, 
we have enough time between now and November to run a fully free and fair election, even with the virus. Because that what that would mean is making sure that everybody has a genuine opportunity to participate. But that takes political will. It does, yes. And, and that's what seems so in short supply. I agree. And that's, you know, I, I don't know if there's much we can do about that when one party thinks that if more people vote, which the president just came, he came out and said the quiet part loud, right? Right. Um, if, if more people vote, it hurts them. And so as long as there's a, you know, political elites in the country who believe that, then I just suspect that this is a battle that will continue. Um, but let me just keep in mind, I mean, let me just point out that you have solved a little bit of this problem just in your earlier comment about um, voters being able to print out ballots when they don't receive their ballot, right? That's, that's not going to work for everyone because everyone doesn't have a printer or, you know, the resources. But a lot of people do. So that will certainly go a long way to addressing at least some of the concerns about people voting absentee. Now, of course, there are other issues, right? Prior to all of this, there was some concerns about um, ballots received from people of color being rejected at a higher rate than ballots received by white people. And that is also something that we will have to confront. Uh, but I am comfortable fighting that battle, right? I feel like that is sort of a normal election administration. Let's make sure we have certain safeguards in place to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, as opposed to, you know, fighting about first order principles about whether people should turn out to vote in the middle of a pandemic. Like I can't, I cannot believe <laughs> that the fault lines have been drawn at this place. How do we get here? Oh, I know. <laughs> right? like, we should be talking about safeguards to make sure people can vote absentee without being disenfranchised. We should not be talking about whether or not people should stay at home or show up and possibly get sick. Like no. this is crazy to me. It is. No, it's, it was what happened in Wisconsin is, hugely worrisome if you because it makes us look like we don't care about our own democracy in a way that yeah. again since 1965 we have been committed to democracy yeah. and this is this shakes our faith now let's hope we rebound from this and it's it's and what this exposes is the the wrongness of the incumbent politicians who put party in front of the people and that there's a backlash effect against them, and the people insist between now and November, it's our democracy, and we demand it, and that you at least have enough good public servants. I mean, so for example, I do think Secretary of State Frank LaRose here in Ohio is trying to help voters. He's not in a disenfranchisement game. He's in a, how do I empower voters? So we need more folks like him yeah. to stand up on both sides of the aisle and say, we run elections for the voters, not for the politicians. I think it's always good to know that these people do exist, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. There are people who are elected officials who think about voters. We just need more of them. Right. And we need the courts. I mean, as disappointing as the, the courts were this week, I'm not giving up completely. I, 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 think, I think there is still... I don't want to be naive about this, but I think there is still a judicial backstop. And I, I think you can still go to court and say there's wrongful disenfranchisement that needs some form of remedy. And again, I'd rather not need to go to court. I'd rather solve this, you know, at the legislative level or the administrative level. But we may need a whole of government approach to protect voting rights this fall. Yeah. And I don't want I certainly don't want to be a cynic, but 
I feel like we need to stay out of the U.S. Supreme Court. <laughs> Maybe other courts um, can help sort of fulfill the goal of, you know, more voter enfranchisement. But the Supreme Court is just, it's not really uh, my form of choice. Yeah, no, I, um, I had a, uh, in class today, that this topic came up about, you know, will this U.S. Supreme Court be there in the fall for voters or not, if necessary? No. No, they won't. Yeah, I, I'm not, I hear you, but I'm not giving up. I'm not completely giving up. I think it, may, it depends on the, again, I think, you, you mentioned this write-in ballot. I think if the district court had ordered the write-in ballot, I think the majority would have accepted that as, a, as a, an appropriate remedy. So, you know, the, the majority wasn't where Ginsburg was. You and I are where Ginsburg was, but that doesn't mean that the majority won't be there for some claims. And From I, your lips to God's ears, Ned. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I, you know, I just, I, you know, but just in terms of where the court has been, um, I have a hard time imagining that they will shift positions in the coming months as things get more fraught and more confusing and more uncertain. The court does not perform well in that domain. Um, and so, and that's, and I think that's my concern, right? District courts and state courts tend to be closer to the facts on the ground. Um, and I, and I still have that opinion, even when state courts behave in a partisan manner. Um, but, but the U S Supreme court is, you know, they just have not been a friend to voters for a while. And I don't anticipate that that'll change in the coming months. And in fact, I think current circumstances may make it worse. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm trying not to be too cynical. Uh, if they do give voters a win, I will, you know, give them all the accolades. But in the meantime, they have to earn my love. <laughs> well, can, <laughs> it, can we end today's conversation and, and make sure that we continue it? But but I'd like to end today on a positive note, and that is, um, you know, a, a, a lower federal court in Florida gave a huge voting rights victory in expanding the scope of the remedy uh, to stop wrongful um, disenfranchisement of, of folks who were ex-felons that were supposed to be re-enfranchised based on the amendment to the Florida Constitution, but then that was taken away by a subsequent state statute. That was declared invalid in an earlier opinion, but with a very narrow remedy that just helped 17 individual voters. But as I understand, I haven't had a chance to read the full opinion, but if I understand the news reports, it is now a, uh, in effect, a class action type remedy. It applies yeah. to every voter in that category. And in terms of the number of people sort of re-enfranchised, you know, the volumes of that is huge. So that's, yeah. that's a voting rights win. And that is a voting rights win. That is fabulous news to end on. Well, with that note, let's, uh, let's stay healthy, let's our families stay healthy, and let's look forward to uh, helping solve as much as we can these issues as we move forward. So to be continued, Bernita, To right? be continued, Ned. Thanks for a great conversation. Likewise. Thank you. Be well. You too.